when I get excited, I speak louder. That was a little too quiet. Bring it up a little more. Now in our text, that sounds good. Thank you. We see that Jesus is casting out many demons, healing many who are sick, and he was not permitting the demons to speak about him, for they knew who he was. It says there in the closing verse, in verse 34. They knew that he was, as demonstrated in our prior text, the Son of God, the Holy One of God. We see throughout the Gospels, throughout the book of Mark, Mark, even in the book of James, that the demons know exactly who Jesus is, and as James wrote, they shudder. But here, and throughout the Gospels, again, Jesus tells the demons, don't reveal my identity. And interestingly enough, he also tells people whom he heals. There's several instances where he heals someone and they're all excited and they want to run out and tell everybody. And he says, now don't tell anybody. Interesting, isn't it? Why this secrecy concerning the coming of the Messiah? Well, you'll know and you'll understand as you read through the gospels that many times Jesus said, mine hour has not yet come. He said it over and over again from the wedding feast at Cana all the way through the Gospels. He says over and over again, mine hour has not yet come. And then there comes a moment where he says, now this is my hour. My hour has come. And that is at the triumphal entry. It is ironic that we call it the triumphal entry. If you didn't have a biblical background and you were there viewing it that day, you would say, well, this is not triumphant at all. Jesus came seated on a big white stallion. No, Jesus came in lowly and seated upon a donkey. In Zechariah, it is prophesied, behold, here comes your king, lowly and seated upon a donkey. And so Jesus that day, Palm Sunday we call it, put himself upon that donkey and he descended down the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley, which is really just a creek. It's like Carpentry Creek. It's a tiny little valley. Up the eastern side of Mount Zion, the Temple Mount, and through the eastern gate and into the temple grounds. And that was his triumphal entry. And you'll remember that that day, the multitudes and the people began to cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save now, save now. And they begin to wave palm fronds. Now palm fronds, historically speaking, in the nation of Israel, were a symbol of freedom. Uh, we look at our flag and we think, well, that speaks freedom. We're Americans, we're free. Or we have other symbols, 4th of July, whatever they may be, firecrackers, I don't know. And we think freedom. The nation of Israel in those times, we look at the palm fronds. In fact, it was on one of their coins and it symbolized freedom. All the way back to the Maccabean revolt, it was freedom for Israel. So here we have the Messiah of Israel. It was even put upon his cross, the king of the Jews, coming down the mountain toward the Temple Mount, which was really the picture of the stronghold and the glory of the Jews and the remaining, the steadfastness of the nation of Israel. And all the Jews begin to cry out, save now, blessed is he, blessed is the king who comes. Now, if you understand uh, first century culture in Israel at all, which we probably don't, but I've read a few things, uh, the Romans were occupying the nation at that time. And it was a political bummer. Can you imagine if some other country rolled into Carpinteria and they just took over and they made up all the rules and they just occupied the whole central coast and whatever they'd said goes and they begin to tax us and we had to live under that tyranny? That was the situation of Israel at the time. And all of a sudden on this day of the triumphal entry when Jesus said, mine hour has now come, being that it preceded the cross, they begin to yell out, save now and wave the flag, so to speak, the palm fronds. And what did the uh, Pharisees do? The Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet. Tell them not to cry out. The reason being was they feared that the Romans would come and squelch this uprising, that they would come militarily and just kill everybody there and arrest people and stop this. There were all sorts of uprisings in the nation of Israel against the occupation and many times when there would have to be a military move to stop the uprising and the Pharisees fearing that, being somewhat in cahoots with the Romans, said, hey, tell the people to be quiet. They can't be waving this flag, palm frond thing, singing safe now. They can't do that. And what did Jesus say? Even if they were silent, the rocks would cry out. Wait a minute, hold on. All through the Gospels, Jesus says, shh, 
don't tell anybody who I am. And all of a sudden, now the triumphal entry, he says, well, let them tell everybody. Here comes the king. Here comes the king. And if they're quiet, the rocks are going to declare that here comes the king. So why did he say be quiet the whole time? Because he did not want people to follow him for the wrong reasons. And here we have a lesson for us today. Many are following Jesus for what they can get from him. They think if they add Jesus to their life as a part of their life, you know, they got the right SUV and they got the right house in the right place and the bank account is looking good and the kids are doing okay and everything is cool. If I just add Jesus to my life, maybe he'll bring some blessings, do some different things. Sounds like he'd be a nice addition. Listen, he is not an addition. He is not a remodel. He is the Lord of all. And yet, we see over and over again in the Gospels, when he began to minister to the people, when he would heal people, when he would feed the people, when he would set them free from demons, that the multitudes were huge. In fact, many times, Jesus had his back pressed up against the Sea of Galilee, and at one occasion, he had to step back into a boat to begin to speak. The crowds were so giant. At the feeding of the 5,000, he fed the 5,000, and the people were so excited, then he began to give the sermon on the bread of life and instruct them that he didn't come to feed the people. He didn't come just to heal them. He didn't come just to set them free from demons, but he came for salvation. And that those who would follow Jesus Christ could not do so on the basis of signs and wonders. Jesus made that very clear. In fact, he said, if anybody wants to follow me, let them pick up their cross and deny themselves daily. What does that mean exactly? Well, gee whiz, I don't know. We wear little crosses around our neck, you know, and we think, well, let him pick up his little piece of jewelry and follow Jesus. This is fun. Kumbaya, my Lord. Kumbaya. This is Christianity. This is great. That's not what it meant in the first century. If you were a Jew and somebody said, pick up your cross, you knew it meant one thing. You were to die. There was no other cross. It was not a necklace in those days. It was not a piece of jewelry. It wasn't something we put up in a building. It was an instrument for torture and murder. And so if somebody was carrying their cross, it only meant one thing, they were going to die. So when Jesus told those who wanted to follow him, pick up your cross and follow me, he said, you must die to yourself to follow me. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? Jesus said, those who will follow me must die to self. They must be born again to be made spiritually alive. And then they can follow me. And so because people were following Jesus for the wrong reasons all throughout the gospel, he would continually say, don't go about talking about these miracles. Wait until mine hour has come. And then when they see me hanging upon a cross and dying and bleeding with my back ripped open and my beard pulled from my face and my face so disfigured that I'm unrecognizable. And then when they see me go into the grave for three days and rise again, then they can make a decision about who they'll follow, but not on the basis of signs and wonders. We are never called to follow God to follow God because of signs and wonders, but because of the salvation that he offers through his death and through our subsequent death, that when we come to Jesus Christ in faith, the old man passes away. Behold, all things become brand new. So beyond people following him for the wrong reason, Jesus also silenced the demons because he did not want the declaration of his kingship to come from the enemy. He came to save men, not to save the demons. Demons knew exactly who he was, but what a shame that the demons would cry out, he's the Holy One of God, and men would sit there and go, gee whiz, I don't know about this guy. He wanted the cross to do all the speaking. Any speculation before the cross as to who he was was premature. He said, mine hour has come when he went to the cross. So that is why Jesus told the demons to be silent when they knew who he was. And now, having that context, that we don't follow signs and wonders, let's look at some signs and wonders that Jesus, is per- Jesus performs here. You'll notice, he just left the synagogue. He had cast out the demon. It's the same day. The last two weeks in this week's teaching take place in the same day. And now, Peter does the most amazing thing, the most wonderful thing, the most profound thing, He takes Jesus home. 
Think about it for a minute. He went to church that morning, so to speak. He went to synagogue. There's sort of equivalent of church. And there he was with Jesus. And he saw Jesus move mightily. He saw him cast out the demon. But then he did what so many of us failed to do in verse 29. He took Jesus to his home. We so often want to leave Jesus at church. I don't know why that is. It's because we have not yet died to self as he has beckoned us to do. You see, when you invite Jesus to be Lord and Savior, he intends to do just that. Not just Savior, but Lord. And it's been said, if Jesus isn't Lord of all of your life, then he's not Lord over any of your life. And we don't just come on Sunday mornings to meet with Jesus. We are to take him outside of the four walls of the church. You see, the church is just where we come together and get all fired up and worship corporately, which is very important, very necessary. But then we take our faith outside of the church into our homes, and that is when Christianity gets radical. What a bummer it is when you run into someone at church that you've worked with for a while, and you go, I didn't know you were a Christian. Are you a Christian? I didn't know you were a Christian. Are you a Christian? Shh, yeah, don't tell anybody. Oh, man. What a shame. Of everything that identifies us, it should be our Christianity. Of everything that identifies us. Paul said, it is no longer I who lives, it is Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith to him. What a shame when we become undercover Christians. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And so Peter does the most glorious thing. Having just met Jesus a while ago, he takes him back to his house. And that is when things get radical. Now listen, friends. If you're like me, if you're you, if you're anybody, you've got friends and family members who are hurting. And what do they need? They need Jesus Christ. The world would offer a million things psychology and drugs and this and self-esteem and so on. You know the Bible never talks about self-esteem. The only time it uses the word self and esteem in any sort of proximity to one another is when it says esteem others as more important than yourself. Self-esteem. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. There is such freedom in dying to self. But so many that don't know Christ, they're all bound up in themselves and they need the freedom of being born again. And so we've got to take Jesus outside the four walls. Turn now to Matthew chapter 11 as you see a wonderful thing that Jesus said that we should all be reminded of and mindful of. Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary. Wait a minute. Anybody know anybody who's weary? Raise your hand. Okay. And heavy laden. Anybody know anybody who's heavy laden? Raise your hand. Okay. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my load is light. Man, what a wonderful promise. That when we are weary and heavy laden, we go to the Lord. We know that as Christians. But what about those, our loved ones, who are weary and heavy laden? We've got to take them to the Lord or said better. Take the Lord to them. The living God lives in you. He has commissioned you as his ambassador, his representative. You can take the Lord to them. And that's what Peter did when he took the Lord home. Look now in Matthew 10, verse 29. God expressing his love. Jesus speaking to Matthew 10, verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from God the Father knowing. Isn't that amazing? I take the Bible literally. I think that God knows every sparrow that falls to the ground. And then it says in verse 30, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. The Bible declares in Isaiah chapter 57 that the Lord is high and exalted, that he dwells on high, that he dwells in a lofty place. And then it says immediately after, and he is near to the brokenhearted. Listen to that. 
God dwells two places, high and exalted on the throne and near to the brokenhearted. Does anybody know anyone who is brokenhearted? Raise your hand. Oh man, you've got the answer. It's Jesus Christ. You've got the answer. You have within you, God has entrusted it in earthen vessels, the secret of life. And it is that Jesus forgives sins and makes people brand new. That has been entrusted to you. That has been entrusted to me. That truth has not been entrusted to the angels. That truth has not been entrusted to CNN. That truth has not been entrusted to anyone or anything except for God's people, God's Christians. Now, if we don't take Jesus outside the four walls of the church, who is going to do it? The government? Is the city of Carpinteria going to come to us and say, hey, all this Jesus stuff you do, we think you should do it at the high school in the middle of the day. No, we wouldn't expect the government to do that. We are to take Jesus to our high school. We are to take him to our college campuses, to our workplaces. We are to take him home. And when we do this, if you would venture to do so with your faith, stuff gets very exciting. Going back to Mark now, we see what happens. In verse 30 of Mark 1, now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. And immediately, they spoke to Jesus about her. Listen, these disciples are brand new. It's just um, Peter and Andrew, their brothers, and James and John, they are also brothers. These four guys, they were just called to leave the nets a while ago, and since they've been walking with Jesus, it's getting exciting. They went to church. Wow, it wasn't normal church. A demon was cast out right there. And now they go home, and hooray for these disciples. Hooray for them. They exhibited at this very early stage in their walk childlike faith. They went home and mom was sick. And they didn't say immediately, where's the Tylenol? Where's the Robitussin? Where's the heating pad? Lay her down. Let's do this. Let's get some cold compresses on her head. It says immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. Now there is only one thing in the New Testament that impressed Jesus Christ. He is not easily impressible. You know, he's a God of all the universe. He's God draped in humanity. There is only one thing that impressed him. Does anybody know the answer? Faith. Every time somebody demonstrated faith in Jesus Christ, he was impressed. Wow, he said, I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel when he spoke to the Roman whose servants was sick. Servant was sick. And now these guys have this childlike faith. I mean, it's just simple. It's like my son, Isaiah. My son, Isaiah, he's almost three years old. He's the most beautiful child in all the world, I'm sure, next to yours. And he has childlike faith. He doesn't know the Lord yet. Gee, we've been preaching the gospel to him, haven't we, honey? My, my wife and I, myself, he's, he's not yet three. He's still pretty young, but we're praying that he's gonna get saved. It's unbelievable. I preach the gospel to him and he says, yes, 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 all the way along. I say, Isaiah, are you a sinner? He goes, yeah, Papa. I say, Isaiah, is Jesus the savior? Yes. What does the cross mean? Jesus loves me. Did you know Jesus wants to forgive you? Yes. Do you want to pray to accept him as your Lord and Savior? No. What? Does it, am I lying, honey? Over and over again, we sit in our living room, we try to lead this little guy to the Lord, and he says no. Pray for the salvation of my son. Please. He's close. But because he's not yet a believer, he doesn't have childlike faith in God. He has childlike faith in me. I'm his father. And so he just believes that the father can do anything. And so he's sleeping in his own bed now, which is wonderful. Praise the Lord. Can anybody relate that he now sleeps in his own bed? Thank you, Jesus. But the work of God is not yet totally complete. He usually comes into our bed at about 5 a.m. And we have a two-story house over um, up there here in town. And he stands at the top of the stairs and we're down on the bottom floor and he wakes up about four or five and he yells, Papa, Papa, or Mama, depending who's the favorite that day. Papa, but I'll be the favorite for now because I'm preaching. Papa, (laughs) Papa, and we hear him. And so I go to the stairs and he's standing at the top and I'm at the bottom and I just get one foot up on the stairs and he goes like this. What does that mean? 
Without saying it means, Papa, I'm going to leap from the top story now down to the bottom story, and I'm not even thinking about it. I am just positive you're going to catch me. And I'm just at the bottom there, and he just goes like this. Wham! And he leaps. Childlike faith. I have never dropped him. Your heavenly father will never drop you. He knows when a sparrow falls and you are infinitely more valuable than any sparrow. The very hairs on your head have been numbered. Childlike faith. When he leaps into my arms and I grab him, my father's heart rejoices that he trusts me like that. I wish we would trust our God in the way that my son trusts his father. We come to the Lord with so much doubt. When has he ever let anybody in all of history down? He never has. And yet we come to him with so much doubt. My wife and I, yesterday was our sixth anniversary. And uh, we had a wonderful, thank you, thank you, thank you. Hey, just stand up for one second, sweetheart, just to embarrass you. Let the people see how beautiful you are. Just stand up. Come on, honey. The people need to know it's you so when they cut you off on the road, that's my woman. Don't mess with my woman. But anyway, yesterday was our anniversary and we just surfed all day long. It was the first good swell of the year and we just went down to Rincon and surfed all day. It was a great anniversary. Went out to Thai food. Thai food wasn't that good, but the surfing was good. Um, Now, my wife, what if I were to say to her, sweetheart, I want to bless you. For your anniversary, I want to get you something wonderful. Tonight, I'm going to take you out to dinner. You get dressed now and we'll go out to dinner. And she would respond to me, I want to go to dinner, but I just don't believe you're going to take me. (laughs) What? Sweetheart, what are you talking about? I'm just not going to put my clothes on. I'm not going to get up. I just don't think you're going to follow through. I don't think you're going to take me. Woman, what are you talking about? (laughs) When have I ever let you down like that? I just want to take you to dinner. I'm able. I've got the money. Actually, she has the money. We have the money. We'll go to dinner. And she would say, "I, I want to believe you, but I just don't. Listen, in all seriousness, my heart would break. As her husband, my heart would break. I'd be so sad. I'd go, I can't believe my woman thinks this lowly of me. I can't believe she thinks I'm that much of a cheese ball. And yet we continually go to God with that same lack of faith. God gives us promises in his word. He declares to us that he wants to move, that he wants to do things in our life. Promises that we can stand on. And yet we come to him and say, I just don't know God. We might never voice it that way, but by our our very actions, we betray the truth in our heart that we just don't believe all the promises of God. Now, I would imagine if I was God, I would be extremely insulted. I would say, who are you, you speck of dust, that you wouldn't believe me? I have been faithful for all of eternity. And now all of a sudden, I'm gonna let you down like what you're going through is a big deal. I have seen this a million times. I have been faithful every single time. I will be faithful to you. When will we, God's people, begin to believe God for what he says? Lord, give us faith today. Peter had this childlike faith. He goes home, mother-in-law is sick, and he begins to speak to the Lord about her before anything else. Now, here's why I believe we don't see all that we could see God do in our lives today, because we treat God as a last resort. For Peter, at this moment, God was the first resort. Mama was sick, went directly to God and began to speak to God, Jesus Christ, about her. We so often try everything else and then we go, oh man, this is a really a bad situation. I, I guess I better pray. Prayer's got to be first. We go to the Lord in everything. There's some old, oh man, isn't there a hymn or a poem or something? It says, oh, what a bummer it is that we don't take everything to the Lord in prayer. Anybody know that one? Is it what a friend we have in Jesus? Do you know that verse? Oh, can you come sing it? Please. What are the words to the verse? What a privilege to carry everything to the Lord in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Is that part of the song? That's not part of the song, Horace. 
Everybody singing a song but you right now. Well, how's it go, Doug? Oh, what needless pain we bear. Okay, so let's get it all together. All because we do not carry everything to him in prayer. Did you get that? Let me paraphrase. How dumb we are and how much pain we carry needlessly when we don't take everything to Jesus in prayer. That's a loose paraphrase of that wonderful old hymn. Peter did this. He just came to the Lord. He said, Lord, here's the deal. My mother-in-law is sick. Now, at this point, he hadn't been walking with Jesus very long. He had not yet seen him heal somebody. He had seen him cast out a demon. He didn't know exactly what the Lord would do, but he just had a sense, man, I can trust this guy. And he went to him and said, my mother-in-law is sick. And the Lord responded. And so, in the next verse, and Jesus came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. Don't you know that God is willing to have the same response in your life? It's been said, before you talk to a man about Jesus, talk to Jesus about the man. Begin talking to the Lord about the people in your life that need him. The people in your life that are sick, that are hurting, that are going through trials, just begin to talk to Jesus about them. That's what prayer is. It's just talking to God. Just begin to do this, saints. I want to exhort you today. I want to encourage you today. I want to challenge you today to take Jesus home. That when you leave here, begin to pray for people. Begin to intercede for people. As you go to Esau's afterwards, by the way, Esau's gives you a 20% discount if you have your bulletin. That's a wonderful thing. As you go to Esau's or the Chamomile Cafe, wherever you're going to have lunch today, and you see people in there from this town, you know that they're hurting. Pray for them. How often in my own wickedness, I see the kids around town that I've grown up with, and, and they're still just... Man, they're lost and they're hurting. And so often in my humanity, in my heart, I go, man, why don't you just get it together, man? What is your problem? And then the Spirit of God speaks to me and goes, what is your problem? Why don't you pray for him? Oh, yes, Lord, okay. Lord, begin to speak to Jesus about the people in your life. And when you do so, do it expecting him to move. Do it with faith expecting God to do stuff. When Peter said, here's the deal, Lord, you know, my mother-in-law said, Jesus came and he raised her up. Now, here's what's cool. Stuff gets exciting when we take Jesus outside the four walls and we take him home. Faith happens. Healings happen. Just to take note, anybody here ever been healed by the Lord? Miraculously, raise your hand. Oh, look around. People have been healed. Isn't that amazing? Healings happen, and service happens. Did you see what Pete's mother-in-law did? Did you notice the way that the Lord healed her? He didn't heal her, and then she just sat around and recovered. No, the Lord is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond more than we could ask, think, or imagine. He healed her, and she immediately got up and began to serve them. She began to serve them. Now, I am sure that this is more than Peter expected, Peter brings Jesus home and she's sick and Lord, maybe, you know, you just heal her and then we'll let her recover and she gets up, wham! What do you guys want for dinner? Whoa, it's the Sabbath, the Sabbath meal. What do you guys want? And she just begins to wait on them and serve them. In John chapter 11, Martha and Mary had a brother named Lazarus and Lazarus died. And Martha and Mary, being very close to Jesus, sent a letter to him. He was over in another town and they simply wrote this, Jesus, the one whom you love is sick. They expected that Jesus, number one, would know that they spoke of Lazarus. Number two, they simply expected that Jesus would come. And then it says the weirdest thing in the opening verses of John chapter 11. It says, because Jesus loved them, he stayed where he was. Wait, who, what? Hold on. Jesus, Lazarus is sick. He's about to die. And you say, because you love him and you love Martha and Mary, you're not going to go? God, you're weird. He is very weird. Read your Bible. He's anything but normal. And so a few days later, Jesus comes walking into town and Lazarus has now been dead for how long? Four days. Yeah, and Mary, Jesus says, hey, roll away the stone. And actually it was Martha. Martha says, oh Lord, he's been dead four days. By now he stinketh. (laughs) And the King James. And they roll away the stone. And Jesus says this, Lazarus, 
come forth. He had to say Lazarus because if he just said come forth, every dead person in Israel would have come out of their grave. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And here he came walking out like a mummy. And he said to the sisters and those there, now you unwrap him and you deal with him. You see, Martha and Mary sent letter to Jesus expecting him to come and heal Lazarus of his sickness. That's fine. That's what they expected. Jesus wanted to deliver more. Doesn't Ephesians 3.20 say that God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think or imagine? They were expecting a healing. Jesus wanted to give them a resurrection. And so saints, when you begin to pray for your family, pray with faith. You might say, Lord, heal them. Jesus might want to resurrect them in the sense of giving them brand new life, bringing them to the Lord. You might say, Lord, that marriage is beyond repair. I mean, just bring some good out of it and he might want to resurrect it and save it and make it brand new. Our God is a God that does miracles today. And so, Pete's mother-in-law gets up and begins to serve. Now, in that is a wonderful picture of how we as Christians and the church as a whole ought to function. The proper response to being touched by Jesus is threefold. To serve him, to give thanks to him, and to worship him. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life is a ransom for many. And in saying that, Jesus set forward the kingdom precept, the kingdom attitude, the kingdom responsibility that we are to be servants of one another. I want you to see it exemplified as you turn now to Mark chapter 10. Go to Mark 10, please. talking about a proper response to Jesus as serving him and servanthood. We have in verse 35 of Mark chapter 10, James and John. The same James and John who are following Jesus, who are in the home of Peter this day, they start out so well with that childlike faith. They're like you and I. Once in a while, it got a little sketchy here. It gets a little sketchy for them. Mark 10, 35, and James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Okay. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you guys? And they said, well, Jesus, grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. We're James and John. We're the sons of Zebedee. We're bad, man. And Jesus, we want to be your right and left hand guys. Do whatever we ask for you in your glory. Make us your number one leaders, Jesus. That's what we want. We think we're worthy. Why not? Why not us? And Jesus responds. Go down to verse 41. And hearing this, the other 10 began to feel indignant with James and John. You can imagine. And calling them to himself, Jesus said, You know, those who are recognized as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. In other words, people in the world, when they have authority, you know, they let you know. Hey, I'm the man, you're not the man. It's my way or the highway. He says to his people, to his disciples in verse 43, but it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. For even, or I'm sorry, shall be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There it is. Jesus lays out that all those who would follow him are to be servants. The servant of all. You want to be a leader? You want to be used by God? You are to become a servant. Now, listen to me. This is where I see in my short few years in ministry, one of the greatest failures in the church. 10% of the church does 90% of the work. It's like that across the board. 10% of the people do 90% of the serving. That means 90% of most congregations are pew potatoes, as we've been talking about every week. And that there's a small percentage who come and actually serve to make things happen. 
Who does these flowers? Somebody in the body cares for these flowers. No, they do not look this beautiful sitting in here all week. They come and they take them after the service and they take them home and they care for them and water them and prune them and then they bring them back. Who vacuums the stage? You know, it's black. Every speck of dust shows up on it horribly. Someone comes late Saturday night and they vacuum the stage. What about the bathrooms? Have you ever seen a men's bathroom? It's the most disgusting thing on earth. We don't have enough bathrooms for how many men we have here. Those things are a nightmare after church. Somebody, a woman comes and she cleans. Some people come and they do spiritual labor here. They come at 8.30 and they intercede for you and for this church service and for the community. Who built these weird blue plastic walls in the back? Somebody built those. Everything that you see, God did, but God did it through a person. And God has called every single Christian to be a servant and to be a part of the body. The Bible declares that we all have a role in the body. And those roles are to take place, the Bible is very clear as you look at the list of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 14 and also in Ephesians 4. Those gifts are to function within the church as well as outside the church. But what happens in the church when only 10% of the people are functioning in their gifts? Only 10% of the people show up and say, okay, this is my church. And so use me here. I want to serve. I want to be used. I don't want to be a taker. I want to be giver. What happens when only 10% of the people do that? Then 90% of the body is lame. We're called the body of Christ. Can you imagine if only 10% of your body functioned? You couldn't do everything that you were created to do. When only 10% of the church functions, we're not able to do everything in the spiritual and physical realm that we are called to do by Christ Jesus. Same within the community. If only 10% of Christians take their faith outside of the walls, then we only have 10% of what God wants to do, I believe. He has designed it so that every single Christian is serving, doing something in the church and outside of the church, and he will not go against that design. And so when Christianity gets radical is when we begin to show up and no longer say, okay, church, what are you going to do for me? Oh, these seats are comfortable. This is a good start. Uh, It's too hot. What are you going to do for me? I hope this sermon is good. I've got some needs. You better not worship too long at the end. Hope my kids are okay. Show me something. Do they have any coffee yet? How come they don't have coffee and donuts at this church? What's the deal? You know why we don't have coffee and donuts at this church? Because nobody has stepped forward to do it. That's why. You guys come to me all week long and you say, hey man, we need coffee and donuts at this church. And I say, amen, praise the Lord, hallelujah, I believe it. But we're just waiting for somebody to do it. I'm not supposed to do everything in this church. That would be decidedly unbiblical. Our small staff is not supposed to do everything in this church. That would be, undis- that would be decidedly unbiblical. We'll have coffee and donuts when somebody steps up and says, hey, I'll lead that. I'll go get the stuff. I'll provide that. I'll get a team together. I'll do it, so on and so forth. That's the way God has designed the church to function. We all have these body roles, and until we begin to fulfill our body roles, the body is lame, the body is crippled, the body is not functioning as it ought to function, and that is just a bummer. It's just sad. Church and Christianity in our communities could be so much radical if we all actually believed what Jesus said here in Mark chapter 10, that the greatest of all is to be the servant of all. Why, out of a church of 500 or so, are there only about five people willing to clean throughout the week? I don't know. That's God's design. That's not me as a pastor saying, you guys don't do anything. That's God's design and me as a pastor responsibly explaining to you what the word teaches. We'll do just what this church is willing to do. Nothing more, nothing less. And so Peter, God bless him, took Jesus outside the walls of the church and Jesus healed his mother-in-law and she had the correct response as we all ought to have to God that is serving him faithfully. Now there's another response, thanksgiving. Turn now to Luke chapter 17 to see a wonderful picture of that. Luke 17.
The proper response is to being touched by Jesus Christ, to serve Him, and to give thanks. Luke 17, 11, on giving thanks. And it came about that while Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, that He was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as He entered a certain village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met Him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when Jesus saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And it came about that as they were going, they were cleansed. Wonderful, wonderful lesson there for another day that they were only cleansed when they responded in obedience, even though Jesus' command didn't seem to make much sense. As they went in obedience, they were cleansed. Now, here's importance. Verse 15, excuse me. Now, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, were there not 10 lepers who were cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who turned back to give glory to God except for this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. It sounds as though Jesus was shocked, dismayed, surprised if he could be that one out of 10, the 10%, turned back to give thanks. Man, that's a bummer. One out of 10 said, God just healed me. I was a leper. My life was over. Nobody would talk to me. Nobody would look at me. I had to alert people when I was coming and say, unclean, unclean, and people would move away. I lost my wife. She would have nothing to do with me. My kids could never touch me again. My life was over. My skin was falling off my body. I was an abomination in all the nation of Israel. Nobody would have anything to do with me. And with a word, Jesus Christ healed me. And only one out of 10 turned back to give thanks. He had the right response, giving thanks to the Lord for what he has done. And the third right response after serving, giving thanks, is worship. Look now in verse 36 of Luke 7. Luke seven thirty-six. Look at this story, Luke seven thirty six. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him. And Jesus entered the, Pharaoh, the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, there was a woman in the city. Woman in the city is a Hebrew idiom for prostitute. Behold, there was a prostitute who was a sinner, i.e. an immoral woman. Behold, there was a prostitute who was an immoral woman. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, wiping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had been invited, who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, hmm, If this man were really a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman she is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I've got something to say to you. Jesus knew what he was saying in his heart. And he replied and said, Oh, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which one of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon the Pharisee answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said, you've judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to the Pharisee, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. He said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Anybody in here been saved? Raise your hand. The proper response 
is to worship God. He who has been forgiven much loves much. Anybody in here been forgiven much? Raise your hands. Gee whiz. He who has been forgiven much loves much. To he who has been given much, much is required. The proper response of the Christian is to worship God in gratitude and service. In the Old Testament, they sacrificed animals. In the New Testament, we sacrifice praise. The author of Hebrews in chapter 13 says to Christians, let us therefore offer up the sacrifice of praise, that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Christians, we are called above all else to worship God. In the Old Testament, you did it by killing animals. In the New Testament, we do it by praising his name. Isn't it cool we get to come in and we get to join together and hear music and just begin to proclaim who he is and give thanks and praise and just call upon him and exalt him. That honor has been given to nobody other than to you and I and the angels. We join with the heavens in praise. My heart breaks as a shepherd here when I see people that just, they don't engage in worship. They somehow think it's about them. Oh, you know, at reality, they play a few songs before the sermon, so we have a buffer time before when it really starts and when we actually have to be there because they play those songs. (laughs) Woe unto you. That is not a buffer time. That's a time when we worship our God. I would challenge you, church starts at 9.30. I would challenge you to get here if you normally come around 9.30, if you don't come at 8.30 for prayer. I would challenge you to get here at 9.20 and sit down in the pew and just begin to prepare your heart to be in the presence of God. Just begin to say, God, I I came here today to worship you, to praise you, to give thanks to you, to give you all the glory and honor that is due to you. And then just sit there and prepare your heart. And in that expectancy that you've developed, see if God doesn't meet you during that time of praise and worship. We were created to worship God. For all of eternity, we will be worshiping in heaven, worshiping him in heaven. And it is now the highest employment, the highest, most wonderful thing a Christian could do is worship. And as our worship leader Judd told us last week, the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth seeking those. Why? Just as he was looking for the 10 lepers to come back and give thanks. He is looking for us to give thanks to him. Just as it was totally natural that Peter's mother-in-law would just start serving out of gratitude, he expects us to come and serve and worship out of gratitude. Now, you can only do that out of a, a right heart. No pastor, no church can coerce you to worship. I can't stand up here with a whip and say, you will worship, although they did do that in the Old Testament. King Josiah told the nation, you will worship the Lord with gladness. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I wish I could do the same, but that liberty has not been given to me by the Lord, but I do have the honor of exhorting you and telling you that our God is so wonderful, so amazing. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. Do you think that Peter worshiped that night? Oh, you know he did. We're told later on in the text that many came to the door. After the Sabbath had ended, all the people came out and Jesus healed the many and he cast out the demons of the many. And I need to tell you, biblically speaking, that Jesus works in that same way today, that he heals people, that he is able and he is willing. It has always been God's nature to heal. He is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. In the Old Testament, he healed. When he came in the flesh, he healed. In the book of Acts, he healed. In all of the church age up until today, God heals. Sometimes God doesn't heal. I don't understand why. You know that Paul had a handkerchief and when people touched the handkerchief, they were healed? That's slightly weird. Acts chapter 19. Did you know that in Acts chapter 5, people would pass under Peter's shadow and they were healed? That's weird. You know what's equally as weird? Paul asked the Lord to heal him on a few occasions, and the Lord said, no. My grace is sufficient for you. No doubt Paul prayed for Timothy to be healed of his stomach ailment, but he had to finally write to him in a letter, you know what, Timothy, the Lord is not healing you. You've got to just drink a little wine for your stomach. 
which does not mean go out and drink wine now, Christians. That was a remedy of the day. Sometimes God heals, sometimes God doesn't. But he is always able. He is always able to heal. And we are always able to come before him and God, say, God, I've, man, I've got this thing that hurts. Lord, heal me. And have the prayer team pray for you. And God will heal some of you. Lord, I have this hurt in my heart. I have this bitterness, this anger from when I was a kid. God, heal this. And God will heal you. God heals today. And I think that this very day, in our midst, God is wanting to manifest his character and his glory and his grace and his compassion and his mercy by healing some people. Other people, as we pray for you to be healed, will not be healed. And as Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. I often think that it takes more faith not to be healed than it does to be healed because now you've got to live with that and still worship God. And God is glorified in that. So as we close the service, I'm going to ask that as the music begins to play, the prayer team would be up here on the sides. And if you just want to trust God to heal you today in some way, that you would be just like Peter. You would just come and say, Peter, here's the deal. I'm sick. Or my mother-in-law is sick. If you want to pray for somebody else, or whoever it might be, and see what the Lord might do. Come in faith knowing that he's able. Come in faith knowing that he is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask, think, or imagine. But I believe that today God will heal some people of various things. And then our responsibility is to give thanks as a church and to worship him as a church and to serve him as a church and get him outside these four walls and see what he can do. Amen? God, we thank you for your wonderful word and for your awesome character and glorious power. And now we just want to come before you and do that which you have privileged us to do by the blood of Jesus Christ to worship you, to give thanks, to offer up the sacrifice of praise. Lord, move in our hearts that we might be struck again with a sense of awe that we have been saved, that we have been healed, that we have been redeemed, that we have been set free. Move in our hearts to renew that sense. I believe there's some people in this room today that they've been Christians a long time and church has become very routine and you serve, you're serving the Lord, but he just wants to instill in you a brand new sense of worshiping him, of that gratitude I believe that he calls some of you today to just get on your knees for the first time in years and bless the Lord. Some of you to be prostrate before him. To just get on your faces and bless the Lord for his goodness. Others of you, I believe this day, he just wants you to cry out. You have not because you ask not. To just cry out and say, Lord, take this from me. Heal me of this. Set me free. Break these chains, Lord. And God is willing to do that. So the prayer team will come forward now. Communion is up here. Take this time. Don't be anxious. Your kids are fine. The world continues to turn. But let's press into the Lord and see what he might do in our midst.